Chapter One of the Ivory Child. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter One. Alan gives a shooting lesson. Now I, Alan Quatermain, come to the story of what was perhaps one of the strangest of all the adventures which have befallen me in the course of a life that so far can scarcely be called tame or humdrum. Amongst many other things it tells of the war against the Black Kendah people, and the dead of Jana, their elephant god. Often since then I have wondered if this creature was or was not anything more than a mere gigantic beast of the forest. It seems improbable, even impossible, but the reader of future days may judge of this matter for himself. Also he can form his opinion as to the religion of the White Kenda, and their pretensions to a certain degree of magical skill. Of this magic I will make only one remark. If it existed at all, it was by no means infallible. To take a single instant, Harut and Marut were convinced by divination that I, and I only, could kill Jana which was why they invited me to Kenderland. Yet in the end it was Hans who killed him. Jana nearly killed me. Now to my tale. In another history called The Holy Flower, I have told how I came to England with a young gentleman of the name of Scroop, partly to see him safely home after a hunting accident, and partly to try to dispose of a unique orchid for a friend of mine called Brother John by white people, and Dogita by the natives, who was popularly supposed to be mad, but in fact was very sane indeed. So sane was he that he pursued what seemed to be an absolutely desperate quest for over twenty years, until, with some humble assistance on my part, he brought it to a curiously successful issue. But all this tale is told in the Holy Flower, and I only allude to it here. That is at present to explain how I came to be in England." While in this country I stayed for a few days with Scroop, or rather with his fiancée and her people, at a fine house in Essex. I called it Essex to avoid the place being identified, but really it was one of the neighbouring counties. During my visit I was taken to see a much finer place, a splendid old castle with brick gateway towers, that had been wonderfully well restored and turned into a most luxurious modern dwelling. Let us call it Ragnall, the seat of a baron of that name. I had heard a good deal about Lord Ragnall, who, according to all accounts, seemed a kind of admirable Crichton. He was said to be wonderfully handsome, a great scholar, he had taken a double first at college, a great athlete, he had been captain of the Oxford boat at the university race, a very promising speaker who had already made his mark in the House of Lords, a sportsman who had shot tigers and other large game in India a poet who had published a successful volume of verse under a pseudonym, a good soldier until he left the service, and lastly a man of enormous wealth, owning, in addition to his estates, several coal-mines and an entire town in the north of England. "'Dear me,' I said when the list was finished, "'he seems to have been born with a whole case of gold spoons in his mouth. I hope one of them will not choke him,' adding, "'Perhaps he will be unlucky in love.' "'That is just where he is most lucky of all,' answered the young lady to whom I was speaking. It was Scroop's fiancée, Miss Manners, 
for he is engaged to a lady that, I am told, is the loveliest, sweetest, cleverest girl in all England, and they absolutely adore each other. Dear me, I repeated, I wonder what fate has got up its sleeve for Lord Ragnall and his perfect lady love. I was doomed to find out one day. So it came about that when, on the following morning, I was asked if I would like to see the wonders of Ragnall Castle, I answered, yes. Really, however, I wanted to have a look at Lord Ragnall himself, if possible, for the account of his many perfections had impressed the imagination of a poor colonist like myself, who had never found an opportunity of setting his eyes upon the kind of human angel. Human devils I had met in plenty, but never a single angel, at least of the male sex. Also, there was always the possibility that I might get a glimpse of the still more angelic lady to whom he was engaged, whose name, I understood, was the Honourable Miss Holmes. So I said that nothing would please me more than to see this castle. Thither we drove accordingly through the fine, frosty air, for the month was December. On reaching the castle, Mr. Scroope was told that Lord Ragnall, whom he knew well, was out shooting somewhere in the park, but that, of course, he could show his friend over the place. So we went in, the three of us, for Miss Manners, to whom Scroope was to be married very shortly, had driven us over in her pony carriage. The porter at the gateway towers took us to the main door of the castle and handed us over to another man, whom he addressed as Mr. Savage, whispering to me that he was his lordship's personal attendant. I remember the name, because it seemed to me that I had never seen anyone who looked much less savage. In truth, his appearance was that of a duke in disguise, as I imagined dukes to be, for I never set eyes on one. His dress, he wore a black morning cutaway coat, was faultless. His manners were exquisite, polite to the verge of irony, but with a hint of haughty pride in the background. He was handsome also, with a fine nose and a hawk-like eye, with a touch of baldness added to the general effect. His age may have been anything between thirty-five and forty, and the way he deprived me of my hat and stick, to which I strove to cling, showed, I thought, resolution of character. Probably, I reflected to myself, he considers me an unusual sort of person who might damage the pictures and other objects of art with the stick, and not seeing his way how to ask me to give it up without suggesting suspicion, was hit upon the expedient of taking my hat also. In after-days Mr. Samuel Savage informed me that I was quite right in this surmise. He said he thought that, judging from my somewhat unconventional appearance, I might be one of the dangerous class of whom he had been reading in the papers, namely a anarchist. I write the word as he pronounced it, for here comes the curious thing. This man, so flawless, so well instructed in some respects, had a fault which gave everything away. His H's were uncertain. Three of them would come quite right, but the fourth, let us say, would be conspicuous either by its utter absence or by its unwanted appearance. He could speak, when describing the Ragnall pictures, in rotund and flowing periods that would scarcely have disgraced the pen of Gibbon. Then suddenly that H would appear, or disappear, and the illusion was over. It was like a sudden shock of cold water down the back. I never discovered the origin of his family. It was a matter of which he did not speak, perhaps because he was vague about it himself. But if an Earl of Norman blood had married a handsome cockney kitchen-maid of native ability, I can quite imagine that Samuel Savage might have been a child of the Union. For the rest he was a good man and a faithful one, for whom I have high respect. 
On this occasion he conducted us round the castle, or rather its more public rooms, showing us many treasures, and, I should think, at least two hundred pictures of eminent and departed artists, which gave him the opportunity of exhibiting a peculiar, if somewhat erratic, knowledge of history. To tell the truth, I began to wish that it were a little less full of detail, since on a December day those large apartments felt uncommonly cold. Scroop and Miss Manor seemed to keep warm, perhaps with the inward fires of mutual admiration. But as I had no one to admire except Mr. Savage, a temperature of about thirty-five degrees produced its natural effect upon me. At length we took a short cut from the large to the little gallery through a warmed and comfortable room, which I understood was Lord Ragnall's study. Halting for a moment by one of the fires, I observed the picture on the wall, over which a curtain was drawn, and asked Mr. Savage what it might be. "'That, sir,' he replied, with a kind of haughty reserve, "'is the portrait of her future ladyship, which his lordship keeps for his private high.' Miss Manners sniggered, and I said, "'Oh, thank you. What an ill-omened kind of thing to do.' Then, observing through an open door the hall in which my hat had been taken from me, I lingered, and as the others vanished in the little gallery, slipped into it, recovered my belongings, and passed out to the garden, purposing to walk there till I was warm again and Scroop reappeared. While I marched up and down a terrace, on which I remember several very cold-looking peacocks were seated, like conscientious birds that knew it was their duty to be ornamental, however low the temperature, I heard some shots fired, apparently in a clump of ilex oaks which grew about five hundred yards away, and reflected to myself that they seemed to be those of a small rifle, not of a shotgun. My curiosity being excited as to what it was to be an almost professional matter, I walked towards the grove, making a circuit through the shrubbery. At length I found myself near to the edge of a glade, and perceived, standing behind the shelter of a magnificent ilex, two men. One of these was a young keeper, and the other, from his appearance, I felt sure must be Lord Ragnall himself. Certainly he was a splendid-looking man, very tall, very broad, very handsome, with a peaked beard, a kind and charming face, and large dark eyes. He wore a cloak upon his shoulders, which was thrown back from over a velvet coat, and except for the light double-barrelled rifle in his hand, looked exactly like a picture by Van Dyck, which Mr. Savage had just informed me, was one of his lordship's ancestors at the time of Charles I. Standing behind another oak, I observed that he was trying to shoot wood-pigeons as they descended to feed upon the acorns, from which the hard weather had made them greedy. From time to time those beautiful blue birds appeared and hovered a moment before they settled, whereupon the sportsmen fired, and they flew away. Bang! Bang! went the double-barrelled rifle, and off fled the pigeon. Damn! said the sportsman, in a pleasant, laughing voice. That's the twelfth I have missed, Charles. "'You hit his tail, my lord. I saw a feather come out. But, my lord, as I told you, there ain't no man living what can kill pigeons on the wing with a bullet, even when they seem to sit still in the air.' "'I have heard of one, Charles. Mr. Scroop has a friend from Africa staying with him, who, he swears, could knock over four out of six. "'Then, my lord, Mr. Scroop has a friend what lies,' replied Charles, as he handed him the second rifle. This was too much for me. I stepped forward, raising my hat politely, and said, "'Sir, forgive me for interrupting you, but you are not shooting at those wood-pigeons in the right way. Although they seem to hover just before they settle, they are dropping much faster than you think. Your keeper was mistaken when he said that you knocked a feather out of the tail of that last bird at which you fired two barrels. In both cases you shot at least a foot above it, and what fell was a leaf from the ilex tree.' 
There was a moment's silence, which was broken by Charles, who ejaculated in a thick voice, "'Well, of all the cheek!' Lord Ragnall, however, for it was he, looked first angry and then amused. "'Sir,' he said, "'I thank you for your advice, which no doubt is excellent, for it is certainly true that I have missed every pigeon which I tried to shoot with these confounded little rifles. But if you could demonstrate in practice what you so kindly set out in precept, the value of your counsel would be enhanced.' Thus he spoke, mimicking, I have no doubt, for he had a sense of humour, the manner of my address, which nervousness had made somewhat pompous. "'Give me the rifle,' I answered, taking off my greatcoat. He handed it me with a bow. "'Mind what you are about,' growled Charles. "'That there thing is full-cocked and air-triggered.' I withered, or rather tried to wither him with a glance, but this unbelieving keeper only stared back at me with insolence in his round and bird-like eyes. Never before had I felt quite so angry with a menial. Then a horrible doubt struck me. Supposing I should miss? I knew very little of the manner of flight of English wood-pigeons, which are not difficult to miss with a bullet, and nothing at all of these particular rifles though a glance at them showed me that they were exquisite weapons of their sort and by a great maker if i muffed the thing now how should i bear the scorn of charles and the polite amusement of his noble master almost i prayed that no more pigeons would put in an appearance and thus that the issue of my supposed skill might be left in doubt but this was not to be these birds came from far in ones or twos to search for their favourite food, and the fact that others had been scared away did not cause them to cease from coming. Presently I heard Charles mutter, "'Now then, look out, Governor. Here's your chance of teaching his lordship how to do it, though he does happen to be the best shot in these counties.' While he spoke, two pigeons appeared, one a little behind the other, coming down very straight. As they reached the opening in the ilex grove, they hovered, preparing to alight. For of us they could see nothing, one at a distance of about fifty, and the other of, say, seventy yards away. I took the nearest, got on to it, allowing for the drop and the angle, and touched the trigger of the rifle, which fell to my shoulder very sweetly. The bullet struck that pigeon on the crop, out of which fell a shower of acorns that it had been eating, as it sank to the ground, stone dead. Number two pigeon, realizing danger, began to mount upwards almost straight. I fired the second barrel, and by good luck shot its head off. Then I snatched the other rifle which Charles had been loading automatically from his outstretched hand, for at that moment I saw two more pigeons coming. At the first I risked a difficult shot and hit it far back, knocking out its tail, but bringing it still fluttering to the ground. The other two I covered, but when I touched the trigger there was a click. No more. This was my opportunity of coming even with Charles, and I availed myself of it. "'Young man,' I said, while he gaped at me open-mouthed, "'you should learn to be careful with rifles, which are dangerous weapons. If you give one to a shooter that is not loaded, it shows that you are capable of anything.' Then I turned, and addressing Lord Ragnall, added, "'I must apologize for that third shot of mine, which was infamous, for I committed a similar fault to that against which I warn you, sir.' and do not fire far enough ahead. However, it may serve to show your attendant the difference between the tail of a pigeon and an oak-leaf. And I pointed to one of the feathers of the poor bird which was still drifting to the ground. Well, 
if this ere snipe of a chap ain't the devil in boots exclaimed charles to himself but his master cut him short with a look and lifted his hat to me and said sir the practice much surpasses the precept which is unusual i congratulate you upon a skill that almost partakes of the marvellous unless indeed chance and he stopped it is natural that you should think so i replied but if more pigeons come and mr charles will make sure that he loads the rifle i hope to undeceive you at this moment however a loud shout from scroop who was looking for me reinforced by a shrill cry uttered by miss manners banished every pigeon within half a mile fact of which i was not sorry since who knows whether i should have it all or any of the next three birds i think my friends are calling me so i will bid you good morning i said awkwardly one moment sir he exclaimed might i first ask your name mine is ragnall lord ragnall and mine is alan quatermain i said oh he answered that explains matters charles this is mr scroop's friend the gentleman that you said exaggerated i think you had better apologize but charles was gone to pick up the pigeons i suppose at this moment scroop and the young lady appeared having heard our voices and a general explanation ensued mr quatermain has been giving me a lesson in shooting pigeons on the wing with a small bore rifle said lord ragnall pointing to the dead birds that still lay upon the ground he is competent to do that said scroop painfully competent replied his lordship if you don't believe me ask the underkeeper it is the only thing i can do i explained modestly rifle shooting is my trade and i have made it a habit of practising at birds on the wing with ball i have no doubt that with a shotgun your lordship would leave me nowhere for that is a game at which i have had little practice except when shooting for the pot in africa yes interrupted scroop you wouldn't have any chance at that alan against one of the finest shots in england i am not so sure said lord ragnall laughing pleasantly i have an idea that mr quatermain is full of surprises however with his leave we'll see if you have a day to spare mr quatermain we are going to shoot through the home coverts to-morrow which haven't been touched till now and i hope you will join us it is most kind of you but that is impossible i answered with firmness i have no gun here oh never mind that mr quatermain i have a pair of breech-loaders these were new things at that date which have been sent down to me to try i am going to return them because they are much too short in the stock for me i think they would just suit you and you are quite welcome to the use of them again i excused myself guessing that the discomfited charles would put all sorts of stories about concerning me and not wishing to look foolish before a party of grand strangers no doubt chosen for their skill at this particular form of sport well alan exclaimed scroop who always had a talent for saying the wrong thing you are quite right not to go into a competition with lord ragnall over high pheasants i flushed for there was some truth in his blundering remark whereon lord ragnall said with ready tact i asked mr quatermain to shoot not to a shooting match scroop and i hope he'll come this left me no option and with a sinking heart i had to accept sorry i can't ask you to scroop said his lordship when the details had been arranged but we can only manage seven guns at this shoot but will you and miss manners come to dine and sleep to-morrow evening i should like to introduce your future wife to my future wife he added colouring a little 
Miss Manners, being devoured with curiosity as to the wonderful Miss Holmes, of whom she had heard so much but never actually seen, accepted at once, before her lover could get out a word, whereupon Scroop volunteered to bring me over in the morning and load for me. Being possessed by a terror that I should be handed over to the care of the unsympathetic Charles, I replied that I should be very grateful, and so the thing was settled. On our way home we passed through a country town, of which I forget the name, and the sight of a gunsmith's shop there reminded me that I had no cartridges. So I stopped to order some, as fortunately Lord Ragnall had mentioned that the guns he was going to lend me were twelve boars. The tradesman asked me how many cartridges I wanted, and when I replied, a hundred, stared at me and said, "'If, as I understood you, sir, you are going to the big winter shoot at Ragnall to-morrow, you had better make it three hundred and fifty at least. I shall be there to watch, like lots of others, and I expect to see nearly two hundred fired by each gun to the last lake stand.' "'Very well,' I answered, fearing to show more ignorance by further discussion. "'I will call for the cartridges on my way to-morrow morning. Please load them with three drams of powder.' "'Yes, sir. And an ounce and an eighth of number five shot, sir? That's what all the gentlemen use.' "'No,' I answered. "'Number three. Please be sure as to that. Good evening.' The gunsmith stared at me, and as I left the shop I heard him remark to his assistant, "'That African gent must think he's going out to shoot ostriches with buckshot. I expect he ain't no good, whatever they may say about him.'" End of chapter 1